I think I really have found my place in the world, which I was, which is what I was looking for on the trail. I was looking number one to like feel safe in the world, in the body in which I had to keep living in after, you know, after the rape. Um, that was one thing I was looking for. I was looking for proof that people are basically good, you know? And so again and again and again on the trail, I put myself in these situations where there'd be, you know, other male hikers and, you know, again and again and again, they were respectful and they respected my boundaries and, you know, and it really did prove to me that rape is not normal and that I, that I am, you know, stronger than I ever believed that I was and more capable than I ever believed that I was when I was 18 or 19. Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today, my guest is Aspen Mattis. She's the author of Your Blue is Not My Blue, a missing person memoir, and also the memoir Girl in the Woods. Her other writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, Tin House, Psychology Today, Salon, and Marie Claire. Welcome, Aspen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad that you're here, and I'm so glad that we connected, and I was able to get your book, and I was able to have you here as a guest, and I have so many questions for you. And I don't quite know where I want to begin, but the first thing I want to say is you are a very young person to have written two memoirs. Does anyone else notice that? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely heard from people who say like, aren't you a little bit young to write a memoir or now two memoirs? And I think like, it's a very reasonable question, but I think it comes from a place of thinking that a memoir is like your biography, like your whole life story, which it usually isn't unless you're like a celebrity or, um, you know, maybe like a historical figure and it's a, a nonfiction book about someone else's life. It could be their whole life story. Usually a memoir is just, it can be about anything meaningful that's happened in your life. And it seems to me a little bit naive to pretend that nothing meaningful happens to the young, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're totally right. And also, I think that's a really good distinction because before I started becoming familiar with memoir, I didn't understand that memoir is sort of about a discrete amount of time within someone's life, right? So it's sort of like a, a chapter within the life that's all kind of connected by sort of one particular theme or journey. Would you say that that's accurate? Yeah, yeah. I once um, heard a memoirist, I think it was. I'm not sure if it was Joan Didion or, or who described, um, oh no, it was Danny Shapiro. Mm -hmm. um, she described a memoir as like you're looking out of one room in a house and you're describing the view that you see through that one window. And yeah, so you might not see a lot of things that you would have seen if you were looking through a different window on the other side of the house, but it doesn't mean that what you're seeing through this window isn't valid just because if someone looks through a different window, they would see a totally different view. Yeah, I really like that a lot. That's actually wonderful. I've also heard it described that um, a memoir isn't necessarily 
about what happened. It's about what you remember happening. Mm, Yeah. It's your memoir. It's your memory. (laughs) Right. And so the first book, before we talk about your latest book, can you just tell a little bit about why you wrote your very first memoir and what that's called? Yeah. So my first memoir is Girl in the Woods. And um, it's about how, well, it begins with um, how on my second day of my freshman year of college, um, before classes had begun, before I'd removed my colorful construction paper name tag from my dorm room door, mm-hmm. I was raped by another freshman, another new freshman in my dorm room. And I reported the the rape to the school and um, I testified and the, the boy testified and um, the mediator concluded that the findings were inconclusive. Um, mm. Uh, and as if like rape could be mediated, like a playground fight between children. And so essentially there was no consequence and they found um, him to be innocent and they allowed him to remain on campus. And then for reasons that were never explained to me, they moved him out of his his uh, big dormitory on the other side of campus and into my building, the floor oh directly above me. Yeah. And so, and I would see him everywhere and I felt really unsafe and un, unheard and just very uncomfortable. And then I realized that my school was not going to help me and I had to help myself and I had to leave this place. And I decided that I was going to try to physically, literally reclaim my body by walking, hiking from Mexico all the way to Canada through California and Oregon and Washington state on this long, long hiking path called the Pacific Crest Trail. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. And that's what most of the book is about. And can you put that in time around what year was that? Um, So the the rape occurred in 2008 when I was 18 and the hike was 2009 when I was 19. Mm -hmm. Which is really young. Did your, I mean, there's so much I want to ask you and I'm also aware of time, but did your parents, uh, did they encourage you or support you on your hike? Did they feel like they had no choice but to let you go? Yeah, they, I mean, they really, I mean, definitely they were scared and worried like any parents would be, you know, when their child tells them, I'm going to live alone in the woods for half a year (laughs) and (laughs) whether you like it or not. But they, uh, but they ultimately, they were very uh, understanding and they understood this was something I needed to do given what had just happened. And they, they supported me and, and, you know, sent me food and things like that. And Mm -hmm. so, yeah, they, they ultimately really were. And and they're also both backpackers. So. Oh, okay. So it wasn't a completely foreign landscape for you. Right. Yeah. Like every summer I'd gone backpacking with my, with my family growing up and it was kind of an oasis. Like it felt like a, almost like a path back to the innocence of my childhood. Yes. And so that journey is in your first book, which um, got a lot of praise. And then, and I do want to, before we move on to your blue is not my blue, I think it's important to note that, you know, campus assault and rape and and that culture has gotten a lot more attention lately. And I wonder how the climate is changing, if it's changing. And I wonder if, if victims ever reach out to you because of what happened to you and your story? Yeah. I mean, to the, to the second question, all the time, uh, students who have been raped at their schools reach out to me or parents of, of people 
who have been raped who want to know how to, what to do and how to respond compassionately. And um, yeah, I hear, I've heard from probably thousands of, mm-hmm. of students and it's really, it, it is so shocking to me. Like I remember when I first went to college, I thought like, you know, I, I remember I re- the person who I reported the rape to, their job title was rape response coordinator. And I remember thinking like, wait, there are only 2000 students at the school. How could there possibly be enough rapes to warrant the position mm. rape response coordinator? And I mean, I've since learned that, you know, somewhere between one in four and one in five female students will be raped during their undergraduate educations. So it's actually an extremely important position, which is even more disturbing in a way. Yes, absolutely. I had no idea about the numbers. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. And I think, um, I don't know that those numbers are going down. You know, I know that the cases are getting a lot more attention and schools, you know, a lot of schools have these kangaroo court justice systems that are designed to find Mm -hmm. the perpetrator innocent because no institution wants a rape conviction on their campus. They want their campus to seem really safe, right? Sure. So yeah, like, so the 18 year olds or 19 year olds who are involved, they don't really necessarily um, know that like there is an inherent conflict of interest. Like I certainly wasn't thinking about that. Like there's a, you know, they want to find, the perpetrator innocent so that their school looks really clean and safe. And, you know, exactly. Yeah. And so I, I do know that a lot of colleges are now starting to hold, um, you know, perpetrators accountable in a way that they weren't before, but I think it's largely, honestly, this might sound cynical, but I think it's the case. I think it's largely out of fear that, you know, if they try to sweep it under the rug and, and lock it in the closet and bury it, um, the truth will come out and and they won't look too good. <laughs> right. And maybe it's the uncomfortable and um, painful parts of change for them, but the necessary changes and to understand that if this is so prevalent, just with the Me Too era too, how that movement came up, if everyone starts to understand and acknowledge that it absolutely is present and there's no getting around it, then we can start to address it and and not not hide the fact that you have a rape, a person in charge of assaults at your school because it is necessary. Right, and make that person in charge, who's in charge, make it their job to actually um, enact justice, not just to, you know, um, make it seem to the to the student at first that, that they care, but in fact have the agenda of dismissing and um, ultimately ignoring the fact that there is a student on their campus who is perpetrating these crimes. And that's so scary also because um, people who commit rapes are likely to commit multiple rapes, especially if there are no consequences. So it's Mm -hmm. very important that there be consequences. Like um, rape is the only violent felony that is almost never... Uh, prosecuted, only 3% of rape cases end in conviction. Oh my goodness. I, again, I didn't know that. It's it's pretty Um, crazy. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's even now it seems, it seems so out of step, out of touch and it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem like even possible, but of course there's so many things that happen in, in this area that seem hard to believe. Do you, do you feel 
like the same person who went on that hike, that hike when you were 19? Or how have you changed, do you think, since you went on that hike? Yeah, I think, well, I changed a lot in the process of of taking that hike, actually. Um, Like, I think in the beginning, I was sort of, I had this very, you know, nihilistic view and this very, like, you know, like, I kind of thought, you know, I can't handle being around people and I just want to live alone in the woods and that's my solution. <laughs> but I really, but I think in the, over the course of the hike, I met other people who were also walking from Mexico to Canada on the PCT, um, who all had reasons for leaving their lives and, and pursuing this huge endeavor. And I really discovered that like, you know, some people are hiking to find their place in the world and other people are hiking from Mexico to Canada because they don't believe that a place for them in this world exists. And I really found that the people who were in that second camp were not doing too well emotionally. And I, I needed to find the place in the world where I thrived and my calling and my the thing that um, made my life meaningful. And, and I did find that in both in, you know, being of service to other women and people who have been sexually assaulted um, through, you know, volunteering volunteering with the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network, RAIN, mm-hmm. um, and also through writing and sharing my experience and hoping that other people will see um, that you can survive hard things and that, you know, being raped doesn't mean that you're damaged or ruined and it's, it's not a shame on you, it's a shame on him, you know, or, mm-hmm. or her, the person who perpetrated the crime. And yeah, I think I've really found in over the course of the past decade, I guess, um, my my purpose in the act of creation and storytelling and mm-hmm. and writing. Mm-hmm. And that brings me to your newest memoir, Your Blue is Not My Blue. And would you say when you, and you're welcome to share a little bit about it. I don't want to give anything away, but whatever you're comfortable, you know, in terms of a synopsis, that would be great. But also you met your husband on the trail. Is that right? That's right. So yeah. So after about 2000 miles of walking, I met a man who it turned out was also walking from Mexico to Canada And it turned out that he'd started off at the Mexican border just two days after I had. And for about three months, we'd been within about a day's walk of each other, trekking north (laughs) in almost sink. (laughs) And then, yeah, and then in in Bend, Oregon, we finally met. And uh, we just really liked each other and decided that we wanted to finish the hike together. And at that point, we were about 600 miles from Canada. And we did. We we walked those final 600 miles together. And then where the trail ended, we didn't want to say goodbye. And we ended up moving in together in Colorado. And then a year later, um, about a year from the day we met, we got we got married. Mm-hmm. And would you say that he was, I know that you name him, isn't it Justin? That's correct. Yeah. I don't know if that's his <laughs> actual name or not. But did you find what category would he fit in, in terms of the kind of people who do that really long walk on the Pacific Crest Trail? Was he the person who didn't think there was a place in the world for him? Or would you say he was the former? 
It's a really interesting question because like, I think probably for him, when he started the hike, he felt like, you know, that there was no place on the world for him where he could be happy other than hiking. And he actually even said similar words to me. Like, you know, he asked me like, if, um, I don't think this is in the book, but, um, he asked me if you could make the trail last forever, would you? And I was like, of course not. Like I wouldn't want to be walking this trail for the rest of my life. And he was like, I would. And I remember that really like struck me, um, because he was really happy and he felt like he had a purpose when he knew like, all I have to do is like, you know, hike 30 miles today or hike 26 miles today and like get to this, you know, like, you know, you don't have a lot of time to, to worry or think when it, all, all of your attention is on your immediate surroundings and your survival and the beauty and you're so immersed in the wilderness. Like it's a very Zen um, kind of existence. You're very present and there's something very appealing about it, especially um to someone who feels easily overwhelmed by all of the injustices in our society and, you know, who wants meaningful work, but doesn't know, um, you know, what work that's meaningful, um, they might actually be qualified to do. You know, I think he was someone who didn't want to just have a job moving money around, you know, he had worked in finance and he described it as making disgustingly rich people even richer and that (laughs) that wasn't what he felt his ultimate you know what his he didn't think that that was what his life was for Mm -hmm. um but I think ultimately um now I mean all these years later I think he has really found his place in the world and um without giving away the ending of the book (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. Well, because uh, your the other part of the title for the book is a missing person memoir, right? Right. So can you can you talk a little bit about that in a way that you would without giving away the book? Yeah, yeah. So um, so basically, the, without giving away what will ultimately happen, uh, the book begins with like meeting Justin on the trail in the woods and uh, marrying him and moving to New York together and. Three years after we got married, um, well, a mutual friend of ours who we'd met on the trail uh, died at the age of 33. And Justin went to the funeral and um, and I stayed home in New York because um, I had classes. And also, honestly, if I'm being honest, like because it was just so sad and I really just didn't think I could handle it. And... Um, the night after the funeral, he didn't come back. And then the next day he didn't come back. And then a week passed and then two weeks passed and his parents hadn't heard from him and his brother hadn't heard from him. And, um, so that's where the book really, um, that's the beginning of like the mystery of the book. And, um, he was a literal missing person. None of us knew where, um, my husband had gone And so over the course of the book, like we all look for him and ultimately we find out. Mm -hmm. So Aspen, when you think about the life that you had, because I guess it's about 10 years ago now when your books, when, when the subject of your books began, right? So it's about 10 years now. 
Yeah, I guess like 12 years because I'm, I'm 30. <laughs> okay. Um, so how are you now compared to that, to that young woman that you were? I mean, I think in many ways I'm, I'm the same, um, I'm the same person, but I think like, I, I think I really have found my place in the world, which I was, which is what I was looking for on the trail. I was looking number one to like feel safe in the world, in the body in which I had to keep living in after, you know, after the rape. Um, that was one thing I was looking for. I was looking for proof that people are basically good, you know? And so again and again and again on the trail, I put myself in these situations where there'd be, you know, other male hikers and, you know, again and again and again, they were respectful and they respected my boundaries and, you know, and it really did prove to me that rape is not normal and that I, that I am, you know, stronger than I ever believed that I was and more capable than I ever believed that I was when I was 18 or 19. And so, yeah, I think in, in some fundamental ways, I'm the same person I was when I was 18, but I think I've really discovered that my happiness lies in creativity and Mm -hmm. writing is an access for me to greater, um, self-awareness and greater insight into the nature of how things work and, um, the patterns in our society and like writing is just such a source of joy and, and clarity. It's kind of like what Joan Didion said, I write to find out what I'm thinking. I really feel like that's, mm-hmm. that's the case with my process too. And um, yeah, I think if I'm writing every day, I'm happy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Did you know when you were experiencing the loss of Justin and um, you, you were in New York and the funeral had happened and you lost Justin, when did you know that what you'd experienced needed to be in a book? Mm, that's a good question. Um, well, I think at the time I wasn't, I definitely was just so overtaken by what was actually going on in the madness of my life that I wasn't thinking about um, turning it into art or anything like that. But I think I first started writing about Justin's disappearance probably in 2000. And 16, so like four years ago or something. Um, And I wrote it in the form of an essay. And so it was an essay um, that launched, you know, Girl in the Woods, an essay in the Modern Love Column in the New York Times. And my objective was to publish this essay. I felt like that's what you do. You publish an essay and then you go to book deal and that's that was my, so I, my, my goal was to publish this essay in, this essay in the New York Times Modern Love Column because I felt that um, it was also a story worth telling. It was a different kind of love, and obviously it was like heartbreak, not like, you know, and then we got married and lived happily ever after. But um, I submitted it, and the editor wrote back a very nice letter, but basically said this doesn't really sound like a, like it's ultimately about love to me. It sounds like it's about you know, something else and like loss and mystery. And I realized, yeah, this isn't, it's, it's not a love story. Um, exactly. And so I actually, this is so embarrassing to admit, but Hmm. I spent (laughs) 
three years working on that essay. I worked on that essay from probably either 2016 or 2015 until like 2018. Um, and I sent it many places and it got rejected from every one of those places. Which is really saying something is, it's notable to me that you had a book published, you had writing in other um, outlets and places, and yet you were still having a hard time, A, placing the essay, but that B, it wasn't quite coming together. I mean, it surprises me because as a writer myself, I know when you have something you're struggling with to, to finish and to figure out why isn't it working. But it seems to me that you had so much experience. So what do you think was going on with the obstacles with that essay? Well, I think like a lot of the feedback that I was getting was that this story feels like it should be a book. It doesn't feel like it can be, like it felt like, something is missing in this very short space. Mm. We can't quite like what did happen to Justin. Like it was like, I couldn't really cover everything in such a short space and have it seem cohesive. Uh, It just, you know, different stories, I think take like naturally take on um, different like forms, you know, like some stories Mm -hmm. are best told and like as an essay and some stories are best told as a poem and some stories are best told, um, in like three volumes because they're, you know, anything else wouldn't quite do them justice and do justice to the nuance. And, you know, and so I really, I wanted to reproduce what had happened with Girl in the Woods because it had worked and I thought it was safe and I thought that was the way to do it um, with the modern love essay and then the book deal from the modern love essay, but it just wasn't reproducible with this story. And I think I had to pivot and realize that, you know, what do they say? Like insanity, the definition of insanity is trying the same thing again and again and expecting different results. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so at a certain point I was like, okay. And, (laughs) and, um, yeah, it was actually my, um, well, without giving away too much about your blue, so my blue, I'm, I'm not together with Justin anymore. And it was actually my boyfriend, my now boyfriend who, um, was like, well, you have an agent, you have like, you know, you have all the infrastructure in place that people, you know, wish they had. Why don't you just write another book proposal and send it to your agent and see if you can sell it for your blue is not my blue. And when he put it like that, it was like, oh yeah, like I already, I don't need to like, like try to like win a race that I can't get admission to. I can Mm -hmm. just play the game that I already have you know, a coach for. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I ended up doing. And then it took less time to write the book than it did to write the essay. Oh my goodness. (laughs) (laughs) That's really saying something too for a writer, right? Yeah. It's crazy. Cause like you start to like, you know, when you get too fixated on something and it's the wrong thing, like that essay was just the wrong thing to put all of my energy into you. Like you can spend hours, you know, deleting this sentence and moving this sentence here, changing this word to that word and wondering <laughs> if I added this detail or took that detail out, could, would that make the difference? And it's like, maybe you're just in the wrong forest altogether. Right. <laughs> right. So once you started writing the manuscript, was there a hardest part of getting the story on paper? There were some, there were a few. Um, I mean, actually one of the hardest parts, the hard thing wasn't getting it on paper because it was already... Um, 
it was already actually on paper because it was the confessions that I wrote when I was 24. And what was so hard was the idea. Like I first, when I first wrote those, I thought I would never show them to anyone because if anyone ever read these things, they would see that I was bad and they would, you know, they would hate me and shun me and I would be outcast, you know, from their hearts, you know? Mm. And, but I remember they just kind of occurred to me as I was writing about that time of blackout drinking and um, I found them and I let my boyfriend read them and he was like, I love you even more. And I feel so many Mm. of the same things. Like I also secretly think I'm, you know, this and that. And like, you know, I feel guilt about this and that thing that I've done. And like, everyone has these things and they try to keep them secret because they think that if other people saw them, then they would be shunned and they would be seen as like bad when in fact, like those are the things that make you human and vulnerable. And it, it, anyone who says that they don't have these like black bucket things or these skeletons or these like fears about um, their nature um, is, is pretending. Mm-hmm. That's true. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So then once you decided that you could incorporate them, what did that feel right to you? Yeah. I mean, it was still really scary. It felt like they definitely made the chapter so much realer and they belonged because they were written during that time. And it, it was just undeniable. Like I didn't change a word. They were so raw. They were my thoughts from that time and my confessions. Um, but I like the idea of like, you know, people who I knew reading them was scary and the idea of strangers reading them and, and judging mm-hmm. me based on them was scary still. And it still is though I have heard from um, a handful of different readers who have said like that the confessions were their favorite part, which is, is really nice to hear. And that, that, and from someone who said that my confessions inspired them to write their confessions, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. For those people thinking of putting their story into a memoir, what would you say to them? I would say that, I mean, it's the most rewarding experience I've ever had. And I, I, I think it's, it takes a lot of bravery and a lot of discipline and a lot of like um, self-reflection and really like um, uncomfortable um uh, reckoning to do it with like authenticity, but I think it's a hundred percent worth it. If only to find out what you're thinking as, as Joan Didion says, like if only to discover what you actually to write, to find out what you're thinking and to discover how you feel about this thing that happened or to see, you know, that this other person's perspective was also valid. I think I discovered that a lot when I write, you see how every person is inherently like myopic. Like you see from your, through your own window, but then when you write, you kind of see the whole house and you're like, wait, there was this other window with this other view that this other person had. And it was also just as valid and it was just as real. Mm-hmm. Do you, it's an interesting thing sometimes because I, I think when I talk to writers, I think it's a, it's maybe a catch 22 between wanting people to read your work, consume what you've created and take away what, what, what they want from it, what they do. But there might also be a wish within you as a writer for 
what your reader gets from the book or receives. And when mm. you think about the story that you've put on paper, I shouldn't even say paper because everyone has eBooks now. But when I when I when you think about this the story that you've written, is there is there something that you hope people will really understand about you or understand about what you've learned? Mm, that's interesting. I think well, more than there being something that I hope people understand about me. Because that's, I mean, that's, it's interesting to think about, but I think it's not so important actually to me. What's more important to me is there be something that people understand about, um, well, with, with your blue is not my blue, really my hope was to make a statement about the nature of perspective and the individualist nature of perception and how no two people see the same situation in the same way. And really that's the title. Your blue is not my blue. There's no way to prove that you see the color blue the same way I do. And in fact, there are lots of ways to prove that scientifically we all see blue differently um, in our, in our own way. And it's kind of a metaphor for any situation in life. I think it's very seductive to pretend that our blue and our perspective is the only reality and the only valid one the only valid way of seeing, which causes a lot of problems. Because if your blue is is my purple, and we could go to war <laughs> over that argument. But mm. um, yeah, so that's really what I want people to take from your blue is not my blue. That you know, it's very seductive to play the victim in the story that we tell ourselves about our lives. But playing the victim is also inherently disempowering and ultimately a cage, even though it's very seductive. And what's much more um, gratifying, ultimately, and much more fulfilling and rewarding is to recognize that you have much more power than you might think you do. Mm-hmm. I really like that. I appreciate that so much. So... If people want to connect with you, can you can you share where we can get your book, where people can get your book and, and learn more about you, any of your other writing? Where where can listeners find you? Yeah, so listeners can get my my book, Your Blue is Not My Blue, and Girl in the Woods um, on Amazon and on almost any, if you just Google Your Blue is Not My Blue, and then my name, which is Aspen Mattis, M-A-T-I-S, um, you could buy it from a local bookseller or from Barnes and Noble, or from a whole number of places. Um, I think it's the cheapest right now on Amazon. Um, but if you're boycotting Amazon, feel free to get it somewhere else. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, same with Girl in the Woods. They're both available, all those places. And you can also follow me on Instagram. Um, my handle is just my name, Aspen, A-S-P-E-N, Mattis, M-A-T-I-S, and on Facebook. Um, my name is Aspen Mattis on there too. Um, and I have Twitter, but I, I very rarely tweet. <laughs> okay. Well, and I'll also have all those links on the landing page for your episode on the podcast page. And I'll be definitely connecting your episode with all of those links so people can find you that way too. Um, Aspen, I'm so glad that you came on. I know you're really busy getting this book promoted and it's a beautiful book and I'm very happy you had some time to talk with me. 
Ronnie, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. Your questions were so phenomenal and I, I it was really fun. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. You take really good care of yourself. You too. <laughs> Thanks for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode and other interviews you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can also find And Then Everything Changed on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like this podcast, please do share it with your friends and take a minute and rate and review so that others can hear these stories too. Thanks for listening.